0: Uh, the book of Jeremiah. Um, maybe you've never heard it preached through as well, and, th- and that'll be great. So uh, we'll start that on Wednesday nights. Um, it may be kind of like we do the Psalms. We might have to break it up a little bit because there's a whole lot in in that book. Uh, so pray for me as, as we prepare to um, as we prepare to start a new journey in just a couple of weeks on Wednesday nights. Matthew 25, verse 14. If you found it, say Amen. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. To every man according to his several ability and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, you delivered unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid. And went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast, that, that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I sow not, and gather where I have not strawed. You ought therefore to have put money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with, uh, usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which has ten talents." For unto everyone that has shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that has not shall be taken away even that which he has. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord, as we continue to look at your return, it's my heart's desire that this would speak to us in a, in a very personal way, understanding that we have responsibilities while we're on this earth. Help us, Lord, to recognize and be faithful in them. In Jesus' name, amen. So those of you who have been with us uh, for the last month uh, see that Jesus is continuing His emphasis on people being prepared for His return. Uh, He He encouraged us uh, in, in chapter 25, verse 1 through 13 this morning to be anxiously waiting for His return. And he's been warning that if you're not ready when Christ returns, that there is no second chance. Uh, The door is shut, and that's it. And in this section, he's focusing on uh, working. He's focusing on work that's a result of faith in Christ. We know from the New Testament that faith produces good works. So it's vitally important that those who claim to know Christ also have coupled with their faith... Good, godly works. We know this section as the parable of the talents. And it goes a little bit further than the parables Jesus has been giving us uh, for in the recent text that we've been looking at. Christ has told us to be watching and waiting eagerly for His coming in those parables, but, but now he's telling us something a little more. He shows us that not only does he expect us does He expect us to be ready internally, but Christ expects us to be busy. Christ expects us to be working. Christ expects us to be active for him when he returns to the earth. Now I want to define some of the parts of this parable before we really get into it, uh, so you'll know as we as we start breaking it down. The owner of the servants in this parable represents Jesus. The servants represent those who claim to be followers of Christ. The journey represents the time between between Christ ascending to the Father and returning to the earth. And the talents represent the ability and the opportunity that God has given each and every one of us. Now when we look at verse 14, we see that the kingdom of heaven is there. And and we've said this before, but the kingdom of heaven is simply the rule of God. Jesus here uses the analogy of a king and, and his servants to explain God's expectation of his servants. You see this man, the man in the story is obviously rich. The man in the story is a very powerful man. And maybe that's why he leaves the country for for such an extended period of time, because he's a prominent man. His presence is not only needed there, but it's needed in other places. Uh, Leaving the country back then was not like it is leaving today. Today, you and I could get on a plane, we could leave the country, and in a matter of days, we could be back, couldn't we? Uh, But in those days, if you left the country, you would be gone for a very long time. And this man had a business. And he knew that his business needed to keep... need to needed to continue. He couldn't just be gone and, and not make money. And so he called his, tru- his servants here, and he trusts these servants. He says, I, I'm going to give you something, and I'm expecting you to use this so my business can continue while I'm gone. Now, now people might wonder here what, why this man would, would trust his possessions with, with these servants. But, but it really wasn't an un- uncommon thing. History shows us that oftentimes in the Roman world, Servants were more educated even than their masters were. Servants often functioned as overseers, overseeing property, overseeing finances. Many of them were well educated, well known. And they could even have the authority to make financial decisions for another person, much like a person today in our culture can uh, receive power of attorney from another individual. There were servants in Jesus' time who could do that for their masters. They could make business deals. Uh, so here's a man who is leaving for an extended period of time. His business has to keep going because he has to keep making money. And so he trusts his goods and his property with these individuals. Now in verse 15, we see that three servants are mentioned. Um, and they're each given a specific amount of talents. A talent is just a measure of weight. That's, that's all it is. You think of talent, you're thinking, oh, I can sing. I can, that's not what he's talking about. It's just a, it's just a weight. In Jesus' day, the value of a coin was determined by two things. Number one, the composition of that coin. And number two, the weight of that coin. A gold coin was the most valuable. A silver coin was the second most valuable. And third and least value was a bronze or a copper coin. And so the talent refers to weight and the weight refers to money. And so the master gives one of the servants five talents. He gives another two talents and, and then another one talent. But note, notice in verse 15 that the talents were given according to the ability of the servant. What does that suggest? That suggests this man, this man knew these people. He knew what they could handle He knew what they could do. The reason he gave five to this guy is this guy is proven. He knows this guy is sharp. The reason he gives three is because he says this guy can handle three. And the reason he gives one, you'll figure out by the end of the parable. Amen? Now, some were better at simply handling money, I think is the bottom line there. But all could handle money. Now in verses 16 and 17, you see the servant that received the five talents immediately goes to work. The master leaves, he goes to work immediately. Verse 16 says he went and traded with them. That's just a general term that that carries the idea of engaging in work. The servant that received the most talents proved to be worthy of that honor, which says something about the master. He knew this guy could do it. He knew him well. He worked hard for the master. His work paid off. He doubled his money. But the servant that received two talents, he did a good job as as well. He got a return. In fact, like the guy with five, he doubled his money. So while they didn't maybe earn the same amount, they did earn the same percentage. But then we come to verse 18, to the servant that received only one talent. Notice what he does He digs a hole. He hides the money in it. Now, by the way, you think, well, that's silly. But that wasn't uncommon. That wasn't uncommon at all in Jesus' day. There were banks in those days, but access wasn't as safe or easy as as it is today. This servant could have deposited that money in a bank, but it wasn't an uncommon thing. If you wanted to keep something and protect it, that you, you would bury. You remember Matthew chapter 13 verse 44. It describes the kingdom of God as a treasure that was hidden in the earth. Remember that? And we preached through that, we talked about how in those days uh, people would bury treasure so that it wouldn't be stolen. Or if, a, if an invading army came in and, and tried to steal everything from the homes like they often did. They would have things buried around the properties and they would know where to get it, so at least they'd have something. And so this guy, this wasn't something that no one did. And so I think you, if you're going to give this guy a little bit of credit, the only thing you could say is at least he wanted to make sure he didn't lose it. At least he wanted to make sure when this guy returned, hey, I can give you back what you gave to me. But, but it does seem to me that this servant knew what was expected of him. He knew that he was supposed to be somehow getting a return. So maybe he buried it in the beginning and was thinking to himself, well, hey, you know, I'll dig it up later and, and then I'll make a little money and maybe his laziness has got the best of him. I don't want to read too much into the parable. But the point is, he should not have buried it. But he did. And then look at verse 19. When you get to verse 19, I think you see a hint here that there's going to be a considerable amount of time that passes between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. Look at verse 19. After a long time. Remember what that that symbolizes. It symbolizes... How long it is between Christ ascending to the Father and Christ's return. After a long time. Remember this morning in the parable? um, It was a long time before the groom showed up. Remember it was midnight? So Jesus kind of keeps making this reference to a long time. And I think that shows us that that He's telling us in His Word, I'm going to leave and it's going to be a long time before I return, okay? He wasn't going to just return immediately and take His church out. After a long time. Now, the master gets home. And notice what his priority is when he gets there. His first thing is, hey, how much money did I make? And He's probably been thinking about that the whole ride home. wonder how much money I made, you know? Couldn't text anybody back then. Couldn't call them. So he's pumped. He gets there. Let me go find out how much money I made. He goes to reckon with His servants. I I, I do want to interject something here. When Christ returns, the first thing He'll do is settle all accounts. Amen? Just as this man, when he returned from this long trip, the very first thing he did was settle up with everybody. When Christ returns, y'all, that's the first thing that happens. That is the number one priority. Christ returns and He's... Christ returns and He settles all accounts with all people. Now in verse 20, the first to come is the servant that received the five talents. Well, of course He's the first to come. Why? Man, because He's excited. He doubled the money. He's anxious to meet the Master. He brought these five talents that He'd been entrusted with. Gave the five more to the master. He's an example of a servant that held nothing back for his master. He's an example of people who have lived faithfully for Jesus. And when Jesus comes back, they say, Amen. They're running toward the Son of God, not running away from Him. They are glad He's returned from the long journey. And look at the response of the master in verse 21. It's an encouragement. He says, Well done. He compliments his character. He says, you're a good servant. You're a faithful servant. Then he rewards him. You're going to be ruler over many things. In other words, I'm going to increase your responsibility. Notice also that the servant's actions increase the master's joy. Enter in into the joy of thy Lord. Servant and master both experiencing joy. And that is a beautiful truth. When you think about when Christ returns, servant and master both experiencing joy. That it is a joy for Christ to receive His people unto Himself. It is a joy for Christ to be there personally present with those servants who have been faithful in what God has called them to rule over. And then we see in verses 22 to 23, the servant that was entrusted with these two talents, well, he's rewarded as well. He enters into the joy of the Lord, just like the first one. So, so far, what do we got? We got happy servants. We got a happy master. The master gave a simple job for these people to do, and they did it. Praise God. Amen? The story's going great, isn't it? But now all that's about to change. In verses 24 and 25. Now immediately you start seeing the excuses that the third servant has. He's got quite a story, doesn't he? You know know any fellas like this? You just listen for the fun of it. Because you have no idea what they're going to tell you. Notice he begins by telling the master about himself. I'm sorry, look, look, look at it. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew... That thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strode. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast, that is thine. So he begins by telling the master about himself. Things he thinks he knows about the master. He says, this is what I knew, Lord. I, I know you're a hard man. By the way, nothing in the text suggests that he's a hard man. Has anything in the text suggested he was a hard man? Nothing there has suggested that at all. And the Greek word used there is a word that describes someone who is harsh. Someone who has an inhumane character. And the servant is saying, well, you know, I know you're an evil and an inconsiderate man... And then he said, I know you're a greedy man. I know you reap where you didn't sow. I know you gather where you did not strew. And and the idea here is you're a person who takes profit away from other people. And when you really look at this, here's what he's calling him. The, the, The servant is calling the master greedy. And on top of that, he's calling him a thief. He says, you use your own influence for personal gain. You resort to immoral behavior if that immoral behavior is going to benefit yourself. And then he said, because of this, I was afraid of you. Now, by the way, he doesn't sound too afraid, does he? I mean, you call a guy inconsiderate, inhumane, a thief. I don't think you call a guy you're scared of that, you know? I was afraid of you. It's interesting to me that that while the servant accuses the master and recognizes his own failure, he never appeals to the master for mercy. He never says, Lord, I was wrong. Would you forgive me? He just says, you, 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 you. He never shows any type of remorse at all. And after his passionate accusations against the master... The servant says, well, this is what I did with your talent. I dug a hole. And I dropped it in there. But I still have it. Let me dust it off for you. Here it is. Didn't make any profit with it, but I've got what you left me with. But his reasoning was this. I was so afraid. You're such a mean man. I could not risk it. I could not face you. If I lost this, because who knows what you do to me? Quite a story, isn't it? And now we have the response of the Master in verses 26 and 27. A pretty serious one. Notice he calls the servant. He says, you wicked and slothful servant. His wickedness is revealed in that he has accused the Master of being an inhumane, greedy thief. And the master in this story was anything but that. In fact, he was happy. Evil people aren't generally happy, joyful people, you know. A sinister laugh is not a laugh we normally laugh with, is it? The <laughs> it's pretty good, wasn't That's not a joyful laugh. That's an evil laugh. This guy, there's nothing to suggest that he's that type of person. So, So he says, you're wicked because you're making these false accusations against me. And then he says, you're lazy, you're slothful because all you did was bury this in the ground. And then then I think that, that there's sarcasm here because the Master says, well, you know this, you know that I reap while I don't sow, and you know that I gather where I haven't strewed. So he's saying this, he's saying, well, if that's how you believe I really am, why in the world would you bury the money? I mean, if you really believe that I'm that money hungry, wouldn't you have tried to do something with the money? Something invested gets just a little bit of return. I mean, I was studying on this, and what I studied, like if he would have put it in one of the Roman banks, could have probably got about a six in, percent um, in, increase. Not a lot, but something. You know, if if the master had wanted his money buried, he could have done that before he left. Right? Why give it to a servant if he wants his money buried? He's really just showing, your story doesn't make sense. Your story is ridiculous. And then we see the judgment in verses 28 through 30. Master says, well, take that talent from Him, give it to somebody who deserves it. And then Jesus starts explaining how this relates to to us. He says, those who have been faithful will be rewarded with abundance. But those who have not been faithful, even that which they have will be taken from them. And he says, take that wicked servant and cast him into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So clearly here, Jesus has gone beyond the mere physical aspect of this parable now. With the closing you see there, he's not just talking about physical here. He's talking about spiritual things. He's talking about hell here. He's talking about the difference between a lost person and a saved person. You don't cast out save people into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, that word throughout Scripture is symbolic of a Christless eternity. And so, just like those those virgins who were foolish that we looked at this morning had some type of connection to the to the bridal party, but weren't really concerned about the groom, and therefore were not truly Christians. This servant here had an attachment to the master, an outward attachment, but it was shown that he did not truly love the master, did not truly care for the master when when, when he returned. And so when Christ returns, there is this great division even in the church where God says, okay, there are people in the church who are saved, there are people in the church who aren't saved. If you were to go by this morning, statistically speaking, that would have been half of them. Scary stuff. Now I want us to consider some thoughts so we can apply this to our life. The first thing is this. The servants represent those who profess to be Christians. Church, there's always going to be people who profess to know Christ but do not. It doesn't matter what age we're living in. No matter what the culture is, there's going to be people... And it's often going to be very difficult for us to distinguish between those who truly know Christ and those who don't. But even on our next message, when, you look, when you're going to look at the sheep and the goats, it's the same thing. With the wedding party, there were foolish virgins, there were wise virgins. Here, there were faithful servants, there were servants who weren't faithful. The next one we're going to look at, it's going to be sheep, it's going to be goats. So he's really hammering this truth, isn't he? He's saying amongst those who have some type of claim to Christianity, there's always going to be those who are real, and then there are going to be those who are fake. And so the servants here represent those who profess to be Christians, but truly aren't. The second truth that I think we can apply to our life is true believers work while the Master is away. That's the clear distinction in this parable. The first two servants were busy. They were investing. They were entrusting for for the good of the master, for for his profit. And this is how true Christians are. We're we're concerned about what the master has called us to do. We're we're motivated by, more than anything, a love for our master and and to see our master prosper. But on the other side of that, we do understand that we're going to be rewarded by him too. And, And that's a motivation. There aren't levels of heaven, church. But there are levels of reward, aren't there? And there are responsibilities. We were talking the other day about heaven. And we were talking about how heaven is an amazing place. And oftentimes we don't really think about what it's truly like. But heaven is a place where where we will actually work and have jobs and have responsibilities. And the level of faithfulness that we have on this earth determines the level of responsibility that we have in the kingdom of God. And I think that's a beautiful thing. The more faithful we are, the more glory we're able to give God through our position in the kingdom of God. And that's a motivator for the true believer. And the third thing I really want to spend a little bit of time on and let you look at is this. Unbelievers in the church have a false view of God. The third servant in this parable, look at how he saw the master. He saw the master as unloving, as unkind. Now he was wrong, but that was his perception. And I don't doubt that that was actually his perception. But the problem is the other two guys had no problem with entering into the joy of the Lord. No problem with entering into the joy of the master. They were glad they were there. They were happy to be with this master. They saw him in a completely different light than this other servant did. And there are people in our churches who come and they don't really know God. And because they don't know God, they have this false understanding of Him. They have this false perception of who God is. Knowing God is equated with being saved. John chapter 17 verse 3 says, This is eternal life that they may know you. Knowing God is equated with being saved. But if a person doesn't have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, they have a false understanding of who God is. I was mentioning this morning about this new phenomenon we see in in social media with with so many of these young people who who are what they're calling deconstructing. And the movement is hashtag exvangelical. The idea is, I have finally broken free from God. I have finally broken free from church. I've broken free from all my parents have ever taught me. And life is so good now. And it doesn't take long to listen to these people to find out, man, you know, if I believed what you believe about God, I might have left the church too. It doesn't take long to find out that what these people believe is nothing near what who God truly is. They're like the the person in this parable who said, Oh, you're awful. You do awful things. And the reason their perception of God is so different is because they don't know God. It's, it's always, you've probably seen this before, maybe there's a man in, in, in your family or something and everybody's kind of maybe a little scared of him, you know. They oh boy, I've got to stay away from this guy. Like people who don't know him, you know. Like maybe he's big or he's kind of uh, got a voice that's deep or, or, or maybe he just, he's a little harsh sometimes and, and maybe people are scared of him, you know. And, and, and you say to him, there's no reason to be scared of him. I know him, right? But their perception of him is just... I've had little kids tell me that, I, that I'm close to now. They're growing up. They say, oh, Brother Carl was so scared of you when I was a kid. Oh, I was so scared of you. But as they grew up and we got to know each other, like, oh, man, you know, Brother Kyle's, hes he's an idiot too. You know, just like the rest of us. But the idea here is this servant thought he knew the Master, but he didn't. And there are people, if you don't have a personal relationship with God, you don't know God. And if you don't know God, of course you're going to have a false understanding of who He is. Now I said this morning, how do you know God? You'll know God by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God reveals who God is. And that means if you don't have the Spirit of God, guess what? You don't know God. You have this false understanding of who God is. You know, it's no wonder if you believe things like this about God that you wouldn't work for Him. You know? There's a clear connection here in this parable between not working for God and not knowing God. The only one that didn't work for for this master was the one who had a completely false perception of who the master truly was. And those who are slothful in the things of the Lord may, may take this into consideration. You know, the Bible teaches if I know God... Know how good God is. Know how merciful God is. Know how loving God is. Know how kind God is. I would never have any trouble working for Him because He's worthy. And then the last thought I've got out of this is all of the excuses in the world won't convince God to let an unbeliever in heaven. All of the excuses in the world won't convince God to let an unbeliever into heaven. Man, this guy had the excuses. I feel like I've met this guy right out here on the street in front of the church before, you know. Because I've met guys like this you try to talk to. And they've got an excuse for everything. You start talking to them about giving their life to the Lord. Start talking to them about living for Christ. And, and man, they've got an excuse for everything in the world. But in the end, there are no excuses. In the end, the unbeliever will suffer loss. The believer is going to be rewarded. That's the end of it. That can't be changed. Won't be changed. If we're not working for the Lord, could be that we're like this wicked and lazy servant in the parable. And Jesus says, "When I come back, make sure you're not that guy. You may not be the guy who's been given amazing talent by God." Five, you know. Maybe you're not that guy, but maybe you are. You may be a person who only got a couple of talents. You may be a person who only got one. But the level of responsibility that you have doesn't excuse you from anything. We all have a responsibility to be faithful with the time and the abilities and the opportunities that God has given us. And it's our responsibility to work for Jesus Christ and to use all that He has given us so that when Christ returns, Christ gets a prophet. What kind of prophet can we get to give the Lord? Well, what about a saved soul? What about somebody you share the gospel with? And they get saved. That's a prophet, isn't it? What about a saint who was over there about to give up, about to quit, about to stop, and you stopped by and prayed for him, and you stopped by and encouraged him, and he stood up and he went on for the Lord? That's profit, isn't it? What about a cup of cold water to a thirsty person? That's profit. Let me, let me make it easy for you. Anything that makes Jesus look good is profit. Amen? Anything you do in your life, that exalts the Lord Jesus Christ, that makes Him look good. And by the way, you don't have to make Jesus look good. He is good, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. Anything you do to lift up Jesus before this lost world is profit. And that's what it means to be a faithful steward. To use your time, use your ability, use your opportunity to be profitable for the Lord Jesus. And that happens when a person truly knows Christ, truly loves Him. Amen.